1: Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today, we're going to be speaking about a very important topic, and it's sleep disorders in people who have chronic kidney disease. And it's my pleasure to speak to Dr. Babak Hakimi. He's a board-certified in critical care, pulmonology, and sleep medicine, and he is in private practice in California, and he's my doctor. So I'm so happy that you're here today because I've learned so much from you um, since becoming a patient, and I want to share your knowledge on, you know, just some of the issues people need to be aware of so they can get help if they need it. So welcome to the show, Dr. Hakimi.
0: Uh, thank you very much. Pleasure.
1: So tell us how you became interested in, you know, this field of medicine.
0: Um, so I initially started, I'd like to feel a medicine after I did some volunteering uh, in terms of being, help, being able to help patients. So after I did my uh, internal medicine and pulmonary critical care, uh, within pulmonary, you do see a lot of patients with sleep disorders, mainly obstructive sleep apnea. And I really became interested and fascinated with it because it really is very rewarding in terms of in medicine. There are not that many things that you can do that, you know, patients' quality of life can also improve. There's a lot of things we can do, but with the sleep, I felt it was, fascinating how patients can come in with a lot of sleep problems and after you treat them they completely become a brand new person so I became very interested in it
1: well it is I, I've witnessed it in um, my aunt who you know I would never you would never think that she would have sleep disorders and she basically went to a sleep specialist and she's like oh my god I feel like alive again now that um, I have um, help So what is the ideal amount of sleep?
0: So the ideal of ominous sleep is, on average, is recommended that we should get uh, seven hours of sleep. Obviously, this is in patients between 18 and, let's say, 64 and 65 years old. And, uh, you know, it's average. So there are some people who will need less sleep, and there are some people who may need more sleep. But on average, we recommend seven hours.
1: And, you know, this is just an obvious question, but, you know, we hear all these people bragging, you know, oh, I only need four hours of sleep a night, and I only need this, and I only need that. And why is sleep so important?
0: It's a very good question. You know, when we look at to see why we need sleep um, and why do we have to have people sleep certain amount of time, it's not really clear, but uh, we do have some um, uh, thoughts of why we need sleep. Number one, just from us, we know when we don't get sleep, you know, the night before we were partying or whatever it was, and then when we wake up in the morning, we don't really feel refreshed. So number one is just basically to be able to feel, uh, refreshed and be a restorative sleep. Now, when we look at more deeper of why, uh, people need some amount of sleep and why do we need that, it's, um, There are different different reasons for them. So we can go through some of the reasons that uh, we have. Number one, it's thought to be uh, that this is a time where sort of your body, uh, so think about it, your brain uses energy, right? And as it uses energy, the breakdown of the energy, something called ADP, it leads to you becoming more sleepy. That's why as we go through the night, we become more sleepy, so this is a time for sort of for, for sort of for the body to kind of restore it itself. In addition, is also is the time where uh, for people to be able to have uh, sort of memory reorganization. This is a time where. Uh, that it's thought that where kind of memory gets compartmentalized into different areas, it's almost like you have a robot in the brain says, okay, we need this, we don't need this, we don't need that. So it's thought thought also (laughs) that this is a time where, you know, memory gets uh, uh, reorganized. Um, And again, so those are some of the, you know, simple thoughts of why we need sleep. And people who don't get enough sleep, they may have some problems.
1: Well, and I know, you know, I just had this visual of like, you know, your brain, somebody conducting it and saying, okay, this, this thought's going to go to trash. We don't need that, but let's keep that one. And and it's basically like a computer compressing <laughs> to take in more information.
0: <laughs> it, it sounds like it, yes. And, you know, this, sometimes there are certain hormones that get released at night to be able to do that, such as growth hormone. But again, a lot of it also has to do with It's it's a time where the brain needs to rest, like every part of the the rest of the part of the body.
1: Well, and you know what are some classic signs that you're not getting enough sleep?
0: So you will wake up number one feeling unrefreshed. Mm -hmm. You will be tired. You'll be sleepy. Now a lot of people complain I'm fatigued and tired, but mainly people who don't get enough sleep will be sleepy. What does that mean to be sleepy? Sleepy means if you've given the opportunity you can doze off or you can fall asleep. Uh, you know, sometimes you always see a picture of like a security guard or someone who fell asleep you know, while at their job. So that's considered sleeping. But someone who you tell them, okay, you know what, here's your opportunity. Go ahead and take a 20-minute nap. And they say, I won't be able to fall asleep. That's not sleeping. So, so fatigue and tiredness and sleepiness, we have to be able to distinguish it. But... People who don't get enough sleep, again, they will feel unrefreshed in the morning. They will be sleepy during the day. Their mind may not be clear. Some people become very moody. You know, some people will have a very low threshold for for getting upset. Um, So uh, they will have cognitive effects. Uh, They may... Fall asleep at different places.
1: That's happened to me when I've you know booked a heavy travel schedule or something like that, and then you're not getting enough food, and then I you know I, I'm having a meltdown, and I think the world's coming to an end. And my husband always reminds me, "You just need a good night's sleep." <laughs> and but I can't I can't think clearly to understand that far in the future. Right, um, <laughs> people have
0: cognitive impairment. You know, they don't. They have this sensation that like there's something missing. They're not able to fully function at their capacity. And we see this with people who have, let's say, for example, sleep apnea. When we treat them, they feel like, oh, my God, where have I been for all these years? I'm so awake now.
1: Why is it that people who have chronic kidney disease are more at risk for having sleep issues?
0: So it, again, depends why they have chronic kidney disease. So number one has to do with the underlying ideology of why uh, the chronic kidney disease is occurring. So let's say um, if so, if we take the chronic, if we take the underlying etiology was causing the chronic kidney disease, and just focusing on people who have let's say in stage renal disease and primarily have a kidney problem, the numerous the numerous different uh, sleep disorders they can have. They can have insomnia, they can have uh, obstructive sleep apnea, they can have restless leg syndrome or periodic limb movement disorders, Um, and they can have just excessive sleepiness during the day.
1: So, you know, sleep apnea is a classic sign of it because um, one of the questions I'm, you know, I don't snore, which, but my husband snores a little bit. Um, He may not be happy that I'm saying that, but is that a sign that you have sleep apnea?
0: Not necessarily. So let's distinguish between snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. So you could have snoring without obstructive sleep apnea, which means is what is obstructive sleep apnea? Is a, is a, it could be either a partial obstruction or complete obstruction, which majority of the time occurs at the base of the tongue, which kind of falls back and kind of obstructs. And as the air going through it, the vibration of the walls leads to snoring. Okay, so that's snoring. Now, if the obstruction becomes significant enough where it leads to desaturation, decrease in oxygen level, either 3% or 4%, that's called a hypopnea. If it's a complete obstruction for a minimum amount of 10 seconds, that's an obstructive apnea. So if you have obstruction but without decrease in oxygen level, that may lead to some snoring, but that's still not strictly qualified for obstructive sleep apnea. You you need to have a certain amount of partial obstruction with decrease in oxygen level and complete obstruction to be given a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea.
1: Well, you know, and that's why it's important if you have a question to see a doctor and then they do an overnight sleep test. Is that how you determine if it's actually obstructive?
0: Yeah, so people, uh, once they go to the doctor, so what are some of the things that obstructive sleep apnea patient may have? Now, again, also in patients with chronic kidney disease, they may manifest it a little bit differently. But people would say, I snore. But remember, that's what I just said was a false statement. No one ever comes to your office and says, I snore. Because you don't know you're snoring. People often come and say, I'm here because, you know what, my wife or my husband says I snore. I don't know what she's talking about. I don't snore. (laughs) Right? But Some people telling you you snore. Other signs would be witness apneas. You say, you know, doc, my husband was sleeping last night and he stopped breathing. I put my hands on his chest and there was nothing moving. I was so scared. So there's witness apneas. People may wake up multiple times throughout the night to go to bathrooms, called nocturia. Uh, They may wake up with dry mouth or sore throat. They may wake up in the morning feeling unrefreshed. They may wake up with morning headaches. During the day, they could be sleepy. Um, So those are some of the classic signs of uh, uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Now, how do we diagnose obstructive sleep apnea? We have to be able to do it a sleep study in order to be able to see those obstructive events. There are different types of sleep testing that we can do. There are home sleep studies and there are in-lap sleep studies. What is the difference? The home sleep studies are the less monitoring. We're really not monitoring the patient's brain activity. What we're monitoring is basically a flow through the mouth and also the belt that they put on their chest in order to be able to see the respiratory effort of the of, of breathing. And then when they go into the lab, is much more involved and detailed because they have EEG, they have uh, different channels to detect flow, oxygen, heart rate. The oxygen and heart rate also you have on the home testing. Uh, uh, oxygen, heart rate, different belts, you also have an EMG to be able to detect movements, which actually in patients with chronic kidney disease, that's one of the most important things because a lot of have periodic limb movement, which can lead to sleep interruptions. And then based on that, we come up, We, you know, then it gets scored to see how many times per night does the patient stop breathing. Based on that number, then we come with a index, which is called the apnea hypopnea index. And there's different severity of sleep apnea. And then for, based on that, patient gets evaluated for treatment.
1: Well, and you mentioned um, periodic leg movement and restless leg syndrome, and I know that um you know, I had some restless leg syndrome, and so basically, how that interrupts your sleep—it's a different cause causing the the restless leg or the periodic leg movement. But it also it just wakes you up, and you never get a full night. Is that what you're saying? Of you're not you're never getting a full night of sleep?
0: Right. So the restless leg syndrome is basically is an urge to move your legs. Sometimes could be the hands, which occurs mainly at night. Uh, it's worse with rest and it gets better with movement. That is, is a clinic, restless leg syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. So if someone has that, that is a restless leg syndrome. Uh, Priority prior movement uh, it mainly occurs, uh, it also is an involuntary jerky movement of legs, sometimes could be of the arms, which mainly occurs during sleep. Patient may report nocturnal awakenings because they're moving their legs, or more they cannot. You know, the, more commonly, uh, their bed partner would say, you know, you keep move, you know, you keep jerking your legs, you keep hitting me, or you know, they feel uncomfortable. And that some people uh they're symptomatic from it because if they keep interrupting their sleep in the middle of the night, uh, they will wake up in the morning feeling unrefreshed because even though they didn't wake up, they may have micro arousals. Uh, which can be seen on an EEG, uh, uh, which the patient may may themselves not feel it, but they will just feel during the day not feeling refreshed. Whereas the restless leg syndrome mostly is initiating sleep. You know, they they just can't stay steady in bed. They keep have to move this urge. They have this sort of a urge, like there's something craw. Sometimes we call a creepy crawling sensation in their mm-hmm. leg where they have to keep moving it, um, and that kind of kind of prevents them from falling asleep.
1: Um, When I was on hemodialysis, I had a lot of restless legs, like they wanted to bounce. And, you know, thank you for explaining that because it's it's really your your legs want to keep moving and it's a medical diagnosis and need to get treatment. But one of the things that, you know, happens is, you know, you like to sleep during hemodialysis if you're in the center. And then um, you find yourself not being able to sleep at night and your whole schedule's off. Can you explain a little bit about why it's so important to have a schedule of sleep?
0: Right, so that takes us to insomnia, which is very common in patients with um, uh, chronic kidney disease or in-stage renal disease and Actually, that is one of the most common symptoms in terms of sleep disorders, and that can at least, it, it can increase mortality. There are different causes of insomnia that can occur in patients with uh, uh, ESRD, instage renal disease, such as restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movement disorder. Sleep apnea, metabolic factors, such as sometimes uremia, anemia, hypercapcemia. They may have bone pain. They may have itching or pruritus. Uh, they also could be depressed, right? Then mm-hmm. uh, also they could be that very poor sleep hygiene. I think that's what more what we're getting into. And uh, and the frequent napping that occurs during dialysis. So the way some I describe to explain to my patients is that Imagine that your body needs a certain amount of sleep in a 24-hour period. Let's say in this case we say seven hours. So if you are giving some of that sleep back to your body or sleep dead back to your body during dialysis, which lets say on average three, four hours, when you go home, your body doesn't really need that much sleep, so you're going to sleep three, four hours. So then people complain, hey, Doc, I only slept four hours at night. But yes, you slept four hours at night, but you also slept two, three hours during the day. So you're really giving your body back the amount of sleep that your body needs. So it's very important to have, yes, a, a set schedule of the time going to bed and the time getting out of bed to have a very good sleep hygiene. And what those does, it creates a very uh, a, uh, a good environment for sleep.
1: Well, and, you know, it it's, it's so important because I would find myself getting frustrated because I would, you know, sleep during treatment. And then, um, you know, and then when I even did home dialysis, I was like, you know, bored. So I'm like, well, I might as well take a nap. And then you go to bed at night and you can't go to sleep and you sit there and just toss and turn and, and you really should just get up and do something (laughs) till you're tired, but you lay there and, you know, count sheep and think of all the things you're not doing. So it it can lead to depression too. And, (laughs) And when I, Um, Got transplanted too. Can you talk a little bit about um, medication? Because uh, I started taking some of the transplant meds and, uh, you know, steroids being one of them. And, you know, it just made it difficult to go to sleep because I have to take them right before I go to bed. Um, I have to take them in the morning and at night. And I do take my steroid in the morning, but they can cause you to be a little hyper.
0: Absolutely. I mean, just going through the kidney transplant by itself. You know, we often see this as patients post-surgery, they go home, and because in the hospital, their night and day is completely shifted, they have pain from surgery, so they go home and they're not able to fall asleep. Forgetting about for a second about the medications they take, just the fact that the surgery itself and they will not be able to fall asleep at night, it creates a sleep behavior or sleep association at their house with sleeping. What happens is this. So patients post-surgery goes home, is not able to fall asleep. So people who don't fall asleep, what do we often do? We stay in bed for a prolonged time, not being able to fall asleep. We just basically shift back and forth. We get frustrated. That frustration lead to more arousal and agitation and more awakening, and then people don't fall asleep for three, four hours. And this continues for, you know, days, day two, day three, week one, week two. And then what ends up happening is that subconsciously, the brain learns that the bedroom is not a place of sleeping. And then that's where actually initial insomnia develops in people who uh, have any type of procedures in a hospital. Because if you look at some people who are what I call them like amazing sleepers, as soon as they walk into the bedroom, they start yawning. Before they put their head down, they already fall asleep. Why? Because the sleep for them didn't begin when they put their head down in the bedroom. Sleep for them started the moment they took a step into the bedroom because the brain kind of associates and says, hey, this is sleep area, like when we go on a vacation, kind of, and the brain kind of turns itself off, and all the things within the body that activates you and prevents you from falling asleep kind of shuts down, so by the time you get to your bed, you already done 20% of the work that the body needs to do to help you go to sleep. So people post kidney transplant or any kind of surgical thing because when they go home, they have this sleep behavior, they don't fall asleep. Medication, obviously, prednisone is an activating drug, and some people have a very severe reaction to it, some people less, but it's very common when people go on certain medications uh, to not being able to fall asleep at night.
1: Well, one thing I learned is I I put my cell phone into it in another room when I go to bed because if I have my phone by my bed, um, you know, I'll get distracted. And, you know, it's a common practice now that people go to uh, go to sleep with their cell phone. Can can you talk about how damaging that can be?
0: So, yes. Yeah. So, you know, your mind has to be able to distinguish between a living room, dining room, kitchen, and a bedroom. So if we basically turn our, our bedroom into our dining room or living room where we watch TV, this is where we talk, this is where we eat, this is where we use our cell phone, all of these kind of, first of all, takes that effect that we talked about away. Number two, cell phones have lights. Lights are activating to our brain. So by having a cell phone in our hands constantly, that kind of activates our brain saying that, hey, you know, you need to stay awake. So it's it is, it is a, it's a, not conducive to an appropriate sleep. Um, it is a great idea to leave the bedroom for sleeping only, and everything else, you kind of take it out of the bedroom.
1: Well, and you know that's that's good advice because I, I roomed with a friend of mine once and she literally had her cell phone under her pillow, and I'm like, how do you sleep when you hear the texts and you know you get up and answer it in the middle of the night? Um, it, it was a disaster because she was tired. Um, uh, people who have kidney who are on dialysis often have a lower hemoglobin, and it's just basically they have a hemoglobin around ten, and and hemoglobin per. Fuses oxygen, so can that play a role in having difficulty sleeping? You
0: know, anemia by itself, because of the oxygenation, uh, would not be causing the uh, the sleep disorders. But anemia has been known to cause sleep problems in uh, people with chronic kidney disease. But the, the physiology of it is a little bit different. Uh, for example, if someone is anemic and is really iron deficient, iron deficiency uh, can lead to uh, limb movement disorder. or uh, 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 I'm sorry, a restless leg syndrome or periodic lip movement disorder. And there was, you know, some studies associating anemia also with insomnia. Uh, but I don't think it's because the oxygen saturation or oxygen delivery, but it's more because you have anemia, because you have kidney disease, and there's a combination of things that are happening.
1: Well, and it's, it's you know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, we have such a chemical imbalance with, you know, taking iron supplements or needing, you, you know, uh, ESAs, all kinds of different things. We're, we're manipulating our chemistry and, of course, that's going to impact our sleep. Um, that makes sense. Uh, what about over-the-counter medication like Benadryl and NyQuil and, you know, do you suggest that those be taken for long-term, short-term? I mean— I know people who take Tylenol PM all the time. And, you know, how does that impact your body?
0: So, I mean, that's a very good question. You know, number one, whenever we take a drug, especially if someone is post-transplant or is taking other medications, we have to make sure those medications doesn't interact with other drugs that we're taking. And, you know, Tylenol is is very common to have an overdose because think about it, someone may take three, four Tylenol during the day because they have headaches, but, you know, they don't, count, you know, they don't count how much Tylenol they've taken, and then they take a big NyQuil dose at night for sleep, and that can put them at danger for having a Tylenol overdose. So they have to be very careful about medication we are taking. In terms of, you know, sleep, you know, having a good sleep hygiene, having a good going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, uh, those are most more powerful uh, and also One more thing, I'm sorry. Uh, and also not laying in bed awake for a prolonged period of time, coming out of the bedroom where they cannot fall asleep, doing something that is dull and boring and go back to bed. Those are, will be more powerful and fix more, better sleep than taking medications. People take Benadryl and combination of Tylenol and different things that are antihistamines to help them sleep. My worry with those are is that sometimes it leads to drowsiness in the morning. And that drowns is in the morning. If someone is going to get up and drive, it makes me nervous. Uh, some people, you know, they can't function in the morning. So I would be cautious about what what drugs to take at night uh, in tri- to, to help them with sleep.
1: And you mentioned Benadryl because when I was a, a child, I mean, ben, I take 25 milligrams of Benadryl and I am so sleepy and on certain occasions I've had to have 50 milligrams with a treatment. And it... It, it, it lingers for days in my body, and I'm grouchy, and I'm tired. And, you know, I remind my friends that Benadryl used to be a prescription medication when I was younger. And, you know, you take any of these medications, you have to be worried if they're over-the-counter or prescription medication. So would the same ring true for um, prescription sleep medication?
0: Absolutely. You know, pres- prescription drugs... You know, there's a reason a prescription because they can have more effects than something that might be over the counter. So, you know, in my sleep practice, I try to minimize amount of sleep medication that I give, uh, and the reason for that is is number one, you know, people get dependent on them. There's the hypnotic dependency. Then they stop working because they need a bigger dose. So, really, in a in a sleep world, uh, you have I look or we try to look for the underlying cause and try to see if we can fix the cause. There are certain cases that we cannot. There's sometimes we just can't. And then you use chemical medi- medications in order to sort of imbalance that, uh, to try to balance that problem. But, you know, it's, I would try to use medication as a last resort.
1: When should people seek medical help? When, you know, you mentioned some of the, the reasons of not sleeping properly in the beginning. And, what kind of doctor should they seek? Because, you know, when I went to see you, I learned so much about sleep and oxygen and different aspects of care that I hadn't been aware of. And I've been in the, you know, medical space my entire life. So it's really important to get a specialist in this area if you have issues. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think,
0: you know, anybody who has insomnia, and again, with any medical condition, the sooner you attack it, the easier it would be to fix it. So anybody who would, you know, cannot sleep, let's say after a week or two or whatever it might be, it's good to get to seek help. Or sometimes there's a lot of good information. As much as I'm against reading online, but there are good information about sleep hygiene, sleep restrictions, and different sorts. If you see those things are not working, simple sort of like you know, a troubleshooting, then I would seek help. If someone, let's say, for example, for a few days, you know, an acute something happens, they need a little bit of sleep aid of a Benadryl or, you know, something from the from their doctor they get, fine. For a few days, if you want to use it, fine. But if you notice that, you know what, it's been week two, week three, I'm dependent on this medication. Without this medication, I cannot fall asleep. I think they need to seek help. And they should look to see which doctors will do cognitive behavioral therapy uh, to be able to try to fix sleep rather than just prescribe more medication. There are sleep psychotherapists. That, that's what they do is basically try to help people with uh, insomnia. There are doctors who are trained in sleep who board certified in sleep that can help. Uh, so those were the do- kind of doctors that I would seek for.
1: When I find when I start reading a book, and I guess there's two ways. If it's really exciting, I don't want to put it down. But if it's kind of mediocre, it makes me fall asleep. <laughs> and what's the psychology behind that? And if um, is it good to hear a bedtime story to help you go to sleep at, at, at the end of the night? So you, you brought up
0: a very fascinating point. So basically, you know, your body needs to sleep. You have to sleep. It's like... You have to put gas in your car. Your car cannot go without gas. Your body cannot go without sleeping. So that's sort of automatic. And that's what's so beautiful about sleep. When people say, I haven't slept for four days, not even a minute, it's impossible. So you have to sleep. Because we have to sleep and because this sort of energy, this sleep depth builds up, we want to sleep. The body wants to sleep. But something prevents it. One of the biggest things that prevents it is us. Our brain is activated. We're, We're annoyed about our job. We're worried about our family. We're worried about the bills that we have to pay. We're worried about the certain tests we have tomorrow. That worry activates your body. That activation prevents you from falling asleep. When you read a book that is boring, what are you doing? You're sort of turning off all the things in your body that are activating you, right? Now, once you turn off all the things that are activating you, your, power, your sleep death is so strong that kind of whoosh. It's called a flip-flop switch. It puts you to sleep. And that's why you could be watching a certain movie or reading a book and you have no idea of which part you actually fell asleep. And that is one of the things that actually you, we use, which is a very powerful tool, is that people who cannot fall asleep or people who actually wake up multiple times throughout the night, what I tell them is after 20, 30 minutes, if you have not fallen back asleep, get out of the bed in the bedroom, take a book that is darn boring, read the book once you start get drowsy and go back to sleep. That's one of the things actually use. Or before going to bed, pick up a book that is kind of, you know, calm and kind of turns you off and, you know, cools you off, turns off all those other thoughts and thinking about that that you have and then try to go to sleep. And what you bring is actually a very fascinating point. That's what we actually use. And that's the whole idea of counting sheep. The whole idea of counting sheep is for you to forget about, to try try to get your thought away from all these activating thoughts and focus something that is dull and boring and really no excitement. And then by the time you get to count 30 or 40 or 50, whatever it might be, you fall asleep. Usually I tell people, hey, just grab a book, you know, and that can work as effectively as Mm -hmm. can
1: Well, and one thing that trick that I do is I have a notepad by my bed because I get all of the, uh, you know, I I have this moment of clarity where I think of all the things I need to do and I get really inspired about, oh, my God, this is a great idea. And I just write it down very quickly because it's or my mind will just wander the whole night about that idea unless I write it down and then I can rest. And then I also learned that I cannot drink caffeine after lunch. (laughs) I, something switched for me a few years ago. I used to be able to drink caffeine anytime, any day. I have a coffee before I go to bed. And if I have little, a little inkling of caffeine in the afternoon, I will be staring at the ceiling all night. And, you know, just being aware of what you eat and drink because it can really impact your sleep.
0: Absolutely. And that's what I tell people. Some people say, I've been drinking coffee all my life. But what I tell them is now you have a change in your body system. Mm-hmm. People who have insomnia, they always have a propensity for insomnia. Then something happens and throws them over the edge. Till you kind of bring them down, they still will be an insomniac. So, yes, for 10 years this worked. But now you've got a major surgery, a major event happen in your life that kind of throws you over the edge. Now anything that you do, the coffee, the prednisone, can activate your brain and prevent you from falling asleep.
1: That makes so much sense, and, you know, I value you so much in, you know, all I've learned and all that you've helped me with um, my care, and it is. Sometimes it's so simple, and we make it so complicated, but just, uh, you know, following some basic sleep hygiene facts that you mentioned can make all the difference. So I I really appreciate you, Dr. Hakimi, for taking your time out of your very busy schedule to help educate um, people who have kidney disease, so thank you. Thank you
0: very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks
1: for listening to Kidney Talk, a
0: program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.